philosophy of the inner city decal course that we offer 198 course here at Berkeley and with that I'm gonna let Mr. Randall Banks take the floor yeah before I do so I'd just like to thank the philosophy department um, during a speech at the uh, I was the uh, alumni guest and uh, sort of to encapsulate the speech I, I thank the department for believing me believing in me when I didn't believe in myself and uh, uh, supporting me when I couldn't support myself and in a sense, loving me when I couldn't love myself as I was going in and out through uh, incarceration, homelessness, and some of the other comorbidities uh, associated with this process of uh, mass incarceration. And their unwavering support of the 198 course, uh, Nico Kolodny, uh, Professor Anna Ginsburg, um, Tim Crockett, Janet Groom, uh, the list goes on and on. I'll be here an hour, thank you. <laughs> so I'll just move on. So I would like to begin with, um, I guess, the lens of the course, which is uh, Double Consciousness by uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. And I'd like to begin with a quote um, from uh, The Souls of Black Folk. And uh, this is an excerpt from uh, Atlantic Magazine. Um, it's chapter... It's a modified version, but the quote begins, the boys posits after the Egyptian and Indian, the Greek and Roman, the Teuton, Mongolian, the Negro is sort of a seventh son born with a veil and gifted with second sight in this American world. A world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of the world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body. That's the lens that we kind of look through the course through. And I'd like to just give a brief blurb of the course, Social and Political Philosophy of the American Inner City. And uh, the aim of the course is to stimulate philosophical inquiry around issues such as urban inequality and its philosophical impact, socially and politically. Through this process, we will apply array, an array of theoretical lenses to empirical examples and thereby drawing out practical and relevant applications to such theories. This framework is designed to cultivate the student's ability and interest in philosophical modes of thinking or to think critically. The theories, however, will, will not be the only foundation of the class. We expect the practice and open discussion to take us even further. And another, besides the, the articles that we read, another primary source will be different in, individuals impacted by homelessness, gentrification, mass incarceration, and other institutional or urban inequities. Um, Another source of knowledge will be, come from social justice advocates and professionals from diverse arenas. So what the course basically does, instead of just reading 
information from a third person perspective, we kind of look at the first person ontological and epistemic perspective of people who actually been through these different encounters with different systems. Um, with that, um, I think the people that have been impacted by the system are, are the real experts. Um, if people spend 20, 30 years in an institution, I think they have a lot more to say than someone who's done research on the institution. And so this is why I value the perspectives of Jabbar and Mr. Best, because to me, they're bringing expertise to the class. I'm not the expert. Yeah, I have a little, I have a little personal, <laughs> well, a lot of personal experience uh, in the game, but um, I look to them for us providing additional insight, the things that I think maybe researchers might overlook. And that's that first person ontological and epistemic perspective. Some people call it lived experience, but I think it's a little bit more powerful than that. Because they, they're, they're, because of their uh, ontology, they have a specific epistemology that I think is really valuable. Um, I'll just reiterate that. I think it's really valuable. I think they're the expertise. So um, if I may, I'd like to Jabbar to speak a little bit about some of the things that he's witnessed in the class but more important, um, he's come up with an idea. I don't know if I want to share. You want me to share your idea? Share the idea. He's come up with an idea based upon his uh, reflection and uh, being impacted by the system for uh, over 20 years, and it's kind of called a rogation treaty. And basically, for lack of a better way, it's a peace treaty uh, to uh, find a safe space where people who have been involved in a lot of violence. Um, um, I'll let you explain it because you're better at it than me. But but it's this peace treaty, and what we're trying to do is he's trying to do is develop these centers, and this is why the case the class is important because we get exposed to people that have really good ideas, but they may not have a PhD, but I think they have uh, uh, an expertise that um, what Fieri calls problem posing. If you if you've ever read Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Um, Basically, what problem posing says, like um, people that have been oppressed, should pose the problems and solutions for their conclusion, for their, for their, for their community, instead of somebody who hasn't been impacted by these things proposing solutions for the community. And so, Jabbar, if you want to give us a couple of minutes. Um, yeah, thank you. I just want to thank you guys for this opportunity. Thank Raymond Banks for the opportunity um, here working. Um, with urban scholars and the opportunity to be able to uh, get to know and get familiar with the Cal campus and the Cal students. Um, it's been an interesting process um, and continuing on. Um, I did 23 years in prison and within that time um, was probably my greatest um, opportunity to be educated. And the one thing I speak on when I speak on education is for me to begin to tap into my gifts and talents as I would be able to understand them. Um, one of the main reasons is because it gave me an opportunity to look at me. And I came from a school system that didn't give me an opportunity to look at me. And so in looking at me, I began to be able to develop <clears throat> myself and develop some ideas and develop some direction. Um, I'm from East Palo Alto, so in 1992, East Palo Alto was unfortunately the murder capital of the United States. I lost my best friend, as well as other friends and uh, people that I grew up with. Um, I think I lost my 
first friend to gun violence in 85 or 86. And so that was the first time that I experienced something like that. It was early in the drug trade or the crack trade, as I should say. And uh, he was the first um, casualty of uh, what I would term genocidal violence, friend against friend, brother against brother. Um, East Palo Alto is a very small community, so we all grew up with one another. Uh, most of our parents, <coughs> excuse me, had grown up with, with each other, went to high school together. Very small community, two miles uh, wide. And so um, the people or the brothers that I grew up with, the brothers and sisters that I grew up with um, as uh, crack cocaine began to be the main uh, source of economics in the community, uh, there were splits within the community. So those of us who played baseball and football together now became somewhat rivals. And in that rivalry, a lot of people began to be hurt. And what we didn't have was people to talk to, someone who understood what we were going through, um, or places to go. And so we just ended up kind of in this cauldron, and it began to be uh, very uh, traumatic for the community. Um, so that was 1992, I lost my best friend, as I said. Um, in prison, I was able to uh, reunite and become friends with the brother who killed him and paralyzed my other friend. Um, we were once friends and became enemies. So this is an intimate situation. We grew up together. We are not people that uh, he lived on this side of town, I lived on that side of town. He wore that color, I wore that color. It wasn't, it wasn't as split as that. So it's a little more complex than just saying, well, they lived on this side of town and they lived on that side of town. We were people that grew up, some of us in the same household. So we were able to uh, begin to develop a relationship that I thought should transcend the prison yard but most importantly, uh, be something that we enforced in our everyday life on the prison yard, which was unity. Because what we left behind was something that we didn't inherit. We left behind communities that were, became rivals against one another. So now it's our children and grandchildren who have picked up the mantle of problems that we left behind. Thus, we have not solved the problem. So, some of us went to prison, some of us got older, matured, went to work, went to school, got our lives together. But our children are still left with this problem. Our grandchildren are still left with this problem. It hasn't been solved. And so for me to have been at the center of the problem, so to speak, um, I felt uh, a degree of obligation to myself, my own family and community. And so together we put together what is called the Rogation Treaty. And so Rogation is a word that comes from the ro ro Roguer. I'm in the philosophy department, so I know it's that. <laughs> but it means it, it, it goes into uh, the third day of the resurrection. And it, it means to stretch forth. So it's the stretching forth of hands. It's a pleading. It's an apology. And so at that time, what we were doing was stretching forth our hands to the community. Um, in, in, in a spirit of reconciliation to the community, and that was our offering at that time. Um, now that I've been blessed to come home, I would like to begin to form centers of healing, places where we can come and learn conflict resolution, 
and deal with some of the problems because although I'm uh, well past uh, being involved in scuffles, the issues that led to our, our uh, having problems have never been discussed. They've never been resolved. People went to jail, people died, people moved on, but they've never been resolved. And so the Rogation Treaty is, is um, the foundation of what I would like to establish as uh, a conflict resolution center that would eventually evolve into centers of healing for our communities where we could begin to work together on issues that we have pertaining to our community, not only in the way of violence, but in the way of, of social uh, issues that we're having, gentrification, so on and so forth. So I live in East Palo Alto. Most people say, oh, it's nice there now, right? <laughs> you know, as if it, it was a terrible place, right? And I don't know that. I understand um, when they, why and when they ask that, but my point is that I grew up in a beautiful community, right? And some things uh, happen to change, but um, I'll, I'll cut myself short for now and pass the time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really one of the more um, important points of the class that we actually bring people in who've been impacted by impacted by these things and kind of look at their solutions. I see. I, sometimes, you know, I think the solutions are not necessarily up here in the on the campus. I think the the solutions are going to come from people actually in the community. Um, and this is why um, the class exists, is to bring that perspective in so we can learn from them. It's not necessarily that Jabbar or Mr. Best is coming up here to learn from us. I want it to be clear and understood that, we, that we, I'm bringing them up here so we can learn from them. Join the circle. Okay. I'm James Best, and I have um, all my life been interested in theology, and I wanted, I wanted to be, I wanted to practice theology and do theology in a way that it embraced one's total outlook, world, this worldview, and it was inclusive of whatever, however I. Eight, I married, produced children, what I did in the community, and so forth. And I, yeah, as, you know, as a child growing up, I was observing different uh, denominations of uh, churches, so forth. And I had, uh, I had reached the age of 19, and I had I was told by the chief of police in a little small town that I was born in, Carruthersville, Missouri, that I was going to have to leave. This was in 1963. I was, I was, I was, well, 60, 64, I'm sorry, 64. And I, I said, why would I, why do I have to leave? And he said, we don't want your kind around here. And he felt comfortable just talking to me like that. And so I said, well, if I don't leave, I said, what are you planning to do? He said, well, we're going to send you to prison for 10 years. I said, well, what's the charge? What would you, what would I, what would you do that for? He said, well, we're going to give you 10 days to go, take care of all your business, and you can just leave. But if you don't leave, we're going to send you to prison for 10 years. 
I said, for what? He said, I don't know. He said, well, we'll figure out something. He said, you can tell a damn lie and get yourself in trouble, and we can tell a damn lie and make it stick. So I, I went and talked, I, I talked to my father, and I told him that I was not going to be bullied and pushed around like that. So I told him, I said, you know, they just have to kill me. I said, I, I, said, I had no plans to leave, and I may leave on my own, but I have not decided to leave. And I, I, so I, I was going to resist it. So my father, he knew me, and he knew I would resist. And so he tried to figure out a way to get me to leave. So he said, he said, listen to, he said, listen to me. This is your daddy talking. He said, don't pay any attention to what they say. Don't make no move based on what they say. He said, but I want you to leave. I'm your daddy. I said, well, Papa, what, where, you, where do you want me to go? You know, I, I'm listening to him. And it, it, you know, it didn't dawn on me at the time that he was making a statement to save my life from his perspective. So he's telling me to leave. I'll obey him. And he know that. But if he told me to do what they told me to do, if he had said it like that, I would have resisted him, and he know that. So he figured out a way to present it to me, that I wouldn't resist him, and so I would go along. But anyway, I left, I come to California. But, but before I left, he told me to, uh, he asked me, what did I want to do with my life? And I, and I told him that I wanted to be a minister. So he told me to stay away from the crooked, uh, lying Christian ministers. And he told me that that was a group that was organizing in all the major cities in America that was my group. And uh, they had their own black businesses and they taught uh, religion from, from a perspective that would uplift and re-educate blacks and everybody else. So I said, well, what's the name of the group? And he said, I don't know. But he described, he had a pretty good description of the Nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. I, I come to understand that later. But when I got to Fresno, California, I started investigating different groups. And I come across some members of the Nation of Islam and other people that were at the fringes. So I started attending the meetings. I was 19. So this is something that I've involved myself in for a number of years. But I have come, I mean, I, I developed to the point that uh, instead of teaching religion from the perspective and from the theological perspective of what is called Islam, I arrived at the point that I would teach it uh, from the perspective of the, the life of the Christ based on the principles of the individual. So I want to 
use theology to solve social problems. And just to put this in a capsule, if you're familiar with the teachings of Paul where he talked about in Christ, there's no Jew, no Greek. He's addressing nationalism. No nationalism. There's no male, no female. He's addressing sexism there. So I see four major, four major problems that uh, that we face that we face uh, in in in, uh, in American society: unbridled nationalism, uh, gross materialism, sexism, racism. And I'd like to add three more problems that I think humanity faces in general. And that is ignorance, disease, and poverty. And so I plan to do, and I'm working on, uh, a system of developing a structure where I can teach people theology to, and do theology in a way that those seven problems can be addressed and solved. So that's that's what I'm about. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. It's a small task. So what are you gonna do the next day? <laughs> that's a Thursday. Danny, <laughs> Danny rest. <laughs> but now I need a lot of help. <laughs> but that's but that's that's the page I'm on. That's the page I'm on. And one of the things that I want to do is uh, we've had, we, uh, we all have read about the apostles in, in the old theological setup. They were all males. Um, I intend to establish a, a church structure where all of the local teachers will be female. And their staffs, they, their, their staffs can be male and female. And each local structure will have at least 10 ministries, but all of them will be headed by a female. So that, that will help that will help to cause the youth that are coming up under that structure, and in general, as we impact the society, it will cause the youth to have greater respect for the thinking, the planning of women, not just the women in, of that particular church, but women in general. And it will have future impacts where, because I believe that the problems the major problems that the society has involves women being locked out of uh, public policy making and law and lawmaking, and that pretty much being controlled by women, whether it, whether it, whether it dealt with religion, politics, or what have you. Even uh, having babies, men have more to say about that than than women do legally. So. I have, I have problems with the way the society is structured, the way the society is functioning. And so I plan to do my little bit to change that. That's the page I'm on, yeah. if that makes sense.
<laughs> Follow that good. I'm time. waiting for the movie, man. <laughs> <laughs> waiting for the movie. So we also got Mel, also got Mel over here. <laughs> right. uh, How can you beat that, Mel? You know what? I, 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 I'm going to take a totally different direction, I suppose. I, I, that's why I show up to class because of these uh, different folks, different stories that I, you know, I come in from an academic standpoint. And so how to how to look at structures from a third party approach and how to look at it and say, oh, well, here's a theoretical construct that should be derived from whatever I'm observing. But what I'm actually getting, and, it's, and going back to what Raymond mentioned about um, um, Freire and pedagogy of the oppressed, is the, the con uh, in this in their dialogue, it is the teacher and student, which is not that same, it's a kind of a symbiotic relationship in that there's right. a learning that goes in between both of them. So what I am doing here is learning a number of different things that I can uh, then apply through the lenses that I see things mm -hmm. and then try to create um, counter systems to ones that created the um, the conditions like Jabbar described in where he was in East Palo Alto. That wasn't, it wasn't just like he and his group of friends. There was, there's an opposing system outside mm -hmm. of his uh, community that has an impact on what happens within that community. Right. So identification of those forces and not simply like um, it's black and white it's like there are no and philosophy is a key part of that so as we look at the at different philosophers mm -hmm. and the impact of their words um, within structures you know it's important to kind of under unpack all that mm -hmm. and figure out where things come from so uh, take a philosopher from the 1800s that was a contemporary of Darwin and that is um, Spencer so he um, that's Herbert Spencer so he is the guy who actually coins um, the phrase survival of the fittest. So it's not Darwin, it's uh, Spencer. He, he's a philosopher in the time and says, okay, well, um, the, the best one wins. And so, uh, so we take that phrase and use it however we feel like using it. to And then from there, also uh, with Darwin in, in that time frame, created eugenics right. and other things that go along with that. So um, philosophy becomes a way of creating... Uh, narratives and stories that other people buy into and believe and create um, huge outcomes for other folks who are not in on that particular philosophy. Right. And so um, so this is a good class for not just you know looking at the theoretical constructs of this someone's philosophy, but the impact of it. Um, you know, we talked in another in one class about um, the no, uh, economics and one of the uh, guys driving economics in the in the current time frame, is the late Gary Becker, who was a um, University of Chicago PhD econ economist, won a Nobel Prize, but two of his um, phrases that he kind of proved was that education is an investment. All right, that sounds great until you start going like education costs have gone have skyrocketed as an investment to separate those who have the capital to invest from those who don't. Um, so he might not have meant that, but that's the way it can be taken and then run with. Uh, another thing he said was that um, that crime and, and uh, criminals, it's a career choice. And they make it because the, the output or, or the, the downside of going into criminal activities is not high enough. And so uh, if you make it so that any crime becomes uh, prohibitive, like the, the punishment for a crime becomes prohibitive, people right. won't do it. So uh, which that's not true at all. I mean, right. we can we don't even have to look at crime to go like um, that's no forget <laughs> there, there's a lot that's not that's wrong there. But um, but outcomes of that are um, 
and he's in the 60s when he, when he started doing this. But if you look at incarceration rates from the 60s, I know we like to give Clinton a bad time for uh, the three strikes rule, but that incarceration rates started changing. Uh, if you were able to take a look at the composition of who was in prison yeah. in 1959 mm -hmm. and look in 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed, mm -hmm. it starts to flip. Hmm. So it's not simply like, oh, well, uh, Nixon's war on drugs or Clinton's third strikes you're out. This, this happened uh, beforehand, but during the time that Becker is promoting his philosophy of economics, um, and, and the philosophy is that kind of says that um, it's a free market-based thing, that says that free market will take care of social ills. So, for example, uh, you have people today who will tell you that racism is a thing of the past because the free market would eliminate that because if somebody enacted racist behavior, well, and they ran a business, you wouldn't frequent that business, they wouldn't make any money, you go to the store who doesn't um, promote racism, and the racist people will go out of business. Well, that's not true either. Right. Um, and so, but, but you can get philosophy people to tell philosophy stories that people pick up as narratives, and they have consequences outside in the real world. Right. And so that's, that's part of what we get here. So what, when coming to the class, we get to talk about philosophers, but we also get to talk about the impact on real people with right. real stories right. that then, as an academic, I can digest that and then interpret it and then put it into academic format so that we can then have discussions outside of um, or, or expand the realms in which we can talk about different things. Um, one of the, the, the four things I've learned from stories of people in the class is, uh, particularly with folks who have been to prison, each one has come in and they've all told um, different stories but they have four key elements in their stories that then I can pursue with deeper um, uh, research and understanding to see how to impact them <coughs> along the way. So one of the, the pieces that, that everyone has talked about is the, their, their, the situation, their environment before they were uh, sent to prison. Mm -hmm. And each person then can talk about the environment in prison and they have different experiences with that, but there's a lot of commonalities there. Mm -hmm. And then, um, because we're talking about people who, have, who are no longer in prison, they talk about the process they had to go through to move out of it. Mm -hmm. And that process um, has certain elements that are similar that we should explore. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there's the post-prison uh, life and then what that looks like. And so there are a lot of intersections that we could affect mm -hmm. with better insight and better knowledge mm -hmm. for people not like me who look at it as, as observers, mm -hmm. but people who are uh, inside systems who can then say, this is what you're really seeing. Right. And then so um, it's not my interpretation as much as my um, assistance mm -hmm. with telling the story so that it can be uh, digested in a proper way. And so that's what I get out of the class. So I think anybody who's interested in doing stuff like that, next year, Philosophy 198. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the course was originated by uh, Dylan Murray. Um, he was a grad student. Uh, I think he started it in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. So he laid out the original syllabus. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was a phenomenal piece of work. It's changed a little bit, and I've changed it a little bit. But um, I'm indebted to Dylan Murray. Um, he's out at Princeton right now. Um, thank you, Dylan, if you hear this. Appreciate it. Um, but uh, one of the major premises of the course, um, um, as I, I wrote, as I understand or interpret Western, the Western philosophical narrative, or the representation of a particular situation in such a way as to reflect or conform or promote a set of over 
reaching aims and values, difference connotes inferiority. And I think that's been one of the major generalizations of, of Western philosophy. If you don't fit this this kind of like model of model of right, I guess, model of whatever it is, model of like with Plato, it was the uh, philosopher kings. If you didn't fit that model, then you were going to be one of the worker bees. Or Aristotle with the free man. You know, if you want a free man, if you want middle class uh, Greek, if you were too rich, you weren't right. If you were too poor, you weren't right. If you weren't Greek, you're definitely not right. So, and if you were a woman, um, I think he goes on to say that, that the soul of a woman, the soul of a barbarian, and the soul of a slave are identical. You know, and it's the soul of the Greek male that's the paradigmatic case. And so uh, what I try to do is look at Western philosophy, and I'm not discounting Western philosophy. I think it has some benefits, but I also think we need to bring in other philosophies, um, especially the distinction between the Western I and the African we. Um, the Western I focuses on individualism, and I want to read a couple of... Uh, quotes um, from uh, sort of this African claim. And I wrote, in contrast, African philosophy views agency from we or, or the us perspective, or a non-hierarchical, seamless, egalitarian unity with no superiority or inferiority distinction. They defer, they differ as to roles and functions. In other words, the fundamental human essence is the same. John Mbiti posits, I am because we are, and because we are, therefore I am. Similarly, the notion of Mbutu contends a person is a person through other persons. An African philosophical life that guides the action. Sorry, I'm sorry. Therefore, uh, once I was saying, um, similarly, to, yeah, the, the notion of Mbutu contends a person is a person through other persons. An African philosophy of life that guides the thinking and actions of Africans must be ground must be found in their lived historical experiences and not from philosophical abstractions that have very little meaning in actual life. This is where African philosophy differs remarkably from Western analytical and con continental philosophies. And I think we can extend that we, the notion of we, to uh, the Native American thought process, um, the uh, Asian thought process, I don't even want to say Asian, not really, uh, the Taoist and Chinese, because even with Confucius, he's always thinking about how the individual's actions impact society. So it's always that constant we, that tension between I and we. And, but in contrast, and I think one of the things that what I conclude the course with is that um, institutionalized racism is always going to exist. Uh, we can't control that as a community, but we can control what we do within our community. And that's kind of like this kind of notion of mutual agency. Um, if you stay up, I stay up, right? If you plug me, I plug you. Yeah. You dig what I'm, uh, maybe that's a little bit street. Some of the mm -hmm. people might not understand what it's I'm saying. It's all right, it's all right. <laughs> Go to the Urban Dictionary and find out what that means. <laughs> but, but I think the reality is that, that or, or one reality is that it's through building bonds within the community to strengthen the community, sort of like what happened with Black Wall Street, which is Tulsa, Oklahoma. They had their own bus system, their own hospital, their own school system. Um, racism ended up destroying it. I think they even called the National Guard to bomb it, drop planes on it. 
I don't know if it was National Guard, but they certainly bombed it. Yeah. Yeah. The first American domestic bombing. The first time Americans had dropped bombs on themselves. Right. So, but then again, they weren't considered people. Much like what happened in uh, Philadelphia with Move. Yeah, but that Move was much later. This happened in Black Wall Street. Yes, yes, much later. So, so I I think. Matter of fact, I don't know if, if if I remember, I don't know of any other cities where a bomb was ever dropped other than uh, Black Wall Street and its move situation. I don't know of a city where a bomb was used against any citizens. Hmm. They did bring in cannons in New York during the the, uh, draft riots in the 1860s. Hmm. That was like, that was trying to take out the Irish. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to go to war. They they didn't want to fight to, to free the slaves. Apparently. Right. <laughs> Considering that they were almost slaves. Exactly. And one of the other things I try to look at is what I call the fallacy of the individual social atom. Um, I rather, I suggest that we're rather social molecules. And, you know, we don't build our own houses. We don't sew our own clothes. We don't make our own cars. We're more dependent on people than we care to admit. So this notion of individualism, I, I just... I just find it hard to believe it. So that's another thing we look at. It's kind of like viewing individuals as social molecules instead of individual social atoms. Um, and I, you know, I look at drug addiction as an instantiation of solipsism. You know, because I think I think one of the things people don't really understand is the impact of of, of substance abuse. You know, I used to think, well, I'm only impacting myself. I'm only destroying myself. No you're doing a lot more damage to your community than you can imagine because your family can't depend on you. The members of your community can't depend on you. You're more in a parasitic mode than anything else. It's all about me. It's all about me and this white powder or, or if, it's, if it's Mexican mud, whatever. But whatever it is, it's about, it's about the substance. And so I disagree with this theory that, you know, substance abuse only hurts the individual. I, I, I think it impacts the community. Um, and so when your communities are flooded with, with these kind of different substances, it creates a, uh, I don't want to have to say, well, have people walking around in silos. I mean, that's a little, little trite. Um, it has people walking around in their own worlds. They're really disconnected from their community. You know, because I'm, I'm out there tweaking, you know, I'm not thinking about, you know, um, where my kids are, where my mother and father are, or how can I help clean up my community or stop crime in my community or support education in my community. I mean, literally become, I would say, parasitic in a, in a way. And, and all we do is take. So that's another thing that I like to look at through the courses, look at substance abuse from a different perspective. Um, uh, and then the other thing I'd like to want to uh, examine through the course is looking at um, oppression as a as a, as it pertains to agency, and we use uh, uh, the, the book. The article is called "A Humanistic Approach to Black Psychology" by. Adelbert, I keep messing that name up. Adelbert Jenkins, is, I think is the name. He's I'm for you. <laughs> <laughs> He's a black psychologist out of NYU, 
And he has a notion of agency as the ability of one to inject themselves into the causal processes of the, of the world. I've kind of tweaked that a little bit. One's ability to inject themselves into the causal processes of the universe, world, society, community, in order to produce an aftermath, the effect. And then I said oppression holds when members, agents of one group, deny or prevent the agency of another group or that agents or members of another community of their ability to inject themselves into the causal processes of the universe, world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because of a certain aspect, whether race, gender, sexual preference, sexual orientation, and so on. So I look at oppression as, as a denial of agency or or causation. Um, that's about all I have to say. I mean, you've been in the course, so I would like to get your opinion. Yeah, well, my uh, my contact with the course came from, I took it as a student my second semester here. I was a brand new philosophy student. Philosophy was still new to me, relatively new to me. And one of the things that I found really frustrating with philosophy was it is, it's almost entirely abstract. We look at the big picture, and it's just like, well, you know, you, these guys don't understand what this looks like when you're actually in the real world. Mm. I come from, I, I had a job. I worked in a prison for seven years. I worked in the culinary industry for 18 years. You know what I mean? I did, uh, worked in politics for 18 years. I got to meet people. I got to see how all these things what it looks like when they touch, when, it, when the, where the rubber hits the road, you know? Mm. And it was really frustrating for me. So when Raymond, I came to this class and I met Raymond and I got to see that this was a way, this looked like another instance of now taking that, turning the, turning the focus back in to the, to the particulars, to the individuals, and what are those effects on those people, on those individuals, and realizing, you know, I can use these same tools that were used, that, that are used to frustrate me and use them to change them, to come up with different perspectives. So it's kind of like looking at, the, looking, at the, looking at the moon through a telescope mm -hmm. on a mountain, right? And then picking up that telescope, going to the moon and looking back. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Right. So looking at it from both ends and noticing things, because then you get to notice things. Like, how these hierarchical systems were set up, and they're used to justify things. You know what I mean? They have like, it's a, it's a damn near scientific justification for oppression. We didn't, we didn't come, the colonial, the colonizers didn't come here and take away the land. They came here to defend themselves, and when it was all said and done, they ended up with the land. Hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So they were the victims, <laughs> they were the victims. Yeah of taking over a continent. That's freaking amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Philosophy played a role in setting up that story or being able to, or giving people the ability to tell the story in that way. You know what I mean? So I said, you know what? <clears throat> There's got to be other narratives out there. There's got to be a way to say it in a different sense so that it, so that it promotes other things. I remember I saw Naeem Akbar, he's a black psychologist, um, up at Davis before I was getting ready to come to Cal. And I asked him, should I take philosophy or, or African-American studies? And he told me to take philosophy because he says when he became a psychologist, when he took psychology, 
He says, well, I studied Jung. I studied Freud. By studying them, I can find out what's wrong with them and imposit my own my own models. You know, but if you don't read Plato, if you don't read Aristotle, how are you going to actually critique them? And so I, I think Western philosophy has a value that's allowed me to come up with some ideas like uh, cross-enrollment with the Urban Scholars at Berkeley program or Malcolm Next Scholars program. Um, it's allowed me to take kind of disparate things that don't seem connected and connect them. So I, I think as, as a way of thinking critically and kind of looking at things from two sides, I think philosophy is a great major. One of the things I would like to see a, a grander picture of what I hope or what I envisage is a, as philosophy is taking the lead in social justice issues. I think we have a lot of potential of, of, of doing, I want to say, I want to say a better job because that sounds elitist. <laughs> but I think I think we have a unique perspective that we can bring to the table, and as far as addressing social social justice issues, um, looking at social justice from uh, from some of these like this kind of utilitarian mode, you know, the greatest happiness for yeah. the greatest number. You know, that's I mean, it sounds cool, but I really didn't understand how well-woven that framework was in, in American society until I actually read John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham. You know, so it has allowed me to see some of the, the flaws and holes in the system. So I think, that, I think that, that Western philosophy does have some value. I just think that maybe we should bring other perspectives in in order to have a more holistic view of the world, you know, and how does that going to manifest, I'm not sure. But I think the 198 course is an opportunity and, and the stepping stone towards, you know, maybe something else coming more developed later on down the line, hopefully. Yeah, I think uh, philosophy does have the ability to create analytical tools that you can use right. to de to both for uh, deduction and induction, uh, you know, for uh, out better outcomes. But the, um, the way I kind of see their dilemma, so to speak, is that within the uh, thick funding systems, um, no one talks about getting young kids involved in philosophy, sociology, psychology, social sciences. STEM, however, gets a much bigger and better um, hmm. set of resources. Why? Because I can translate that into a, a simple job type of thing. And I want you to do this particular skill set. And you know what? I'm not really that invested in creativity. If you can just kind of do this thing, right. that, that's good. Yeah. But a, so the liberal arts general broad education where you take in and, and can um, make an amalgam of different topics to come to conclusions on your own, now, that's not valued. And so uh, philosophy, though, then has been pushed to the back of that whole group of social sciences that mm -hmm. go like, well, you know what? Because kids come into school and they have the conversation with their parents. And the parents are going to go like, yeah, I'm, you can go to college, but you better take something that, you know, get you a job. And that becomes the paramount thing. And it isn't, so it becomes vocational. And um, when you're an employer hiring people, you know, the first thing you want to know is can you do this particular job? But then what differentiates you from some other people? Well, I, I can do this job. I can right. do this. I can, I'm, I'm the best accountant because I can count numbers. Right. As this person can count numbers. Now what? So, but we don't spend time on that, uh, on the other elements. Yeah. And then, that, so so we're forcing people to not be able to to think holistically and critically, and critically because that's that's not valued. I mean, who? When is the last time you saw like 
you know, a billionaire philosopher. I think the last one was Boom Pickens. <laughs> <laughs> so, based on philosophy, like, oh, I mean, you know, my, my philosophy stock price is going crazy. That, that, that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it was T. Boom Pickens was a philosophy man. He was the yeah. corporate raider guy. Yeah, yeah. So he didn't even make it from philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you learn to organize things. Yeah. In philosophy. You you're organize abstract ideas and see things and recognize trends. So I think it could, it it has other applications. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's there's so there's so many more that it has out there. When we we don't pick it up because it has a stigma. Yeah. Elaborate. <laughs> Seems like it, Bill Gates is a is a philosopher. <laughs> it it, it kind of goes against um, the established order yeah. um, to produce thinkers hmm. over workers, right? And so um, we've dedicated ourselves here in America to producing workers, not thinkers, right? There may be very few that come up with a way to make more jobs. So when you look at what's being produced at the major universities that's the touted jobs right they're engineers that are gearing the society um, towards needing less people to do more less work right um, more computers uh, more robots and this is what the best thinkers are producing they're figuring out ways on how to minimize human contact and mm. jobs for the future are they really the best thinkers because well, I think what, the, what I, it sounds to me is like what they're best at is they're best at in that model as described by you, and I'm mm -hmm. not disputing that that's not the case. Yeah. But it seems to me that that's just another computer. So you're just somebody, they're, they're becoming automatons. They're, 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 mm -hmm. They're void. They, they're, they're suppressing the thing that makes them human, mm -hmm. right? I, I, which, is, which is this ability to think, think, think yeah. critically. I, 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 I see that. I'm so, I'm so, I'm no, so. just to answer your question, I okay. wouldn't say that they're the best thinkers, but they are the yeah. best people at that that they have from amongst the crowd that's willing to do what it is that needs to be done. Because I said again, philosophy kind of develops thinkers, right? Critical thinkers, right? But we're not engaged in producing thinkers for the world. We're producing people that go into jobs. And I think uh, what's, what's, what's really, really taking place is that the educational system in the United States of America and throughout the planet, reality. Most of the people who follow this model, they're not interested in research and discovery of the interests, the talents, the gifts of human beings and nurturing the human being to develop, cultivate those talents, interests, skills, so forth. That's not even on. That's not even part of the equation, though it needs to be, as I see it. You know what? Because in the model you just explained, even even with the with your clarification, what that what that means is, institutions like Berkeley are essentially just, uh, they're just trade schools, man. They're vocational, they're, they're, they're vocational. vocational school. That's uh, all. That's all it really is, right? Except for the philosophy part. <laughs> Except for us. <laughs> Except for us. You got it. You, you got know it. what I mean? You got it. I mean, maybe rhetoric. Maybe they might be like. No, no, not the sophists. <laughs> sophism. Oh, man. <laughs> you have to cover that in class Play, one day. Plato Plato the whole class on sophism. Yeah. Plato hated them. I mean, when we look at the educational system from kindergarten on up, right, 
everything is rote learning, right? Yeah. So I tell you what it is, and you repeat it back, and that's correct, right? If you don't repeat it back, then what happens? You can fail. It's wrong. <laughs> Even if what you repeat, what you tell me back, your answer is correct, right? Or it can so, be justified logically. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so you don't get to college until you begin to start figuring out what is it that you want to do. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't had parents that instilled time in those talents and gifts that you've had, right? Education, educe, to bring out, yeah. to pull forth what's, what's mm -hmm. there, right? Mm -hmm. um, then I guess college would be the only time that you would even think about doing that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and now it's really about money. And so that's why I made reference to my time in prison being the time that I had to begin to educate myself. Right. Right. Not based on a job or how much money I would make. Because yeah. I, I think it's an, a, a, a huge mistake, I was going to say egregious, <laughs> but a huge mistake to assume that, that people coming out of, uh, uh, of incarceration are, are not intelligent. Oh, yeah, no. Or, or have great capacities and abilities. And I think that's kind of the perception that you got to come here to get, get to be sharp. And I, and I and I think that from what I've seen, um, and I, I want to talk about this, and you know that, that term you told me not to use, which is lifer, and uh, we want to talk about that. I didn't tell you not to use it. <laughs> <laughs> I said I don't apply it to uh, myself. Okay, that's, right, that's almost the same. It's not the same. All right, man, I lost my train of thought. You're more than welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I done lost my train of thought. Where was I going with this? Yeah. Um, I don't know, but that water, I see the, I see the go over your head. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 I think the perception is that we're, we're coming in to give them an opportunity. I think it should be the other way around. They're giving us an opportunity to learn what they know. And this is why I value, as I started meeting more quote-unquote lifers the, the, or, or people that spent long-termers, I'm really starting to appreciate the body of knowledge that they bring to the table in their perspective, but more importantly, their critical thinking skills. And what Jabbar had said to me the other day is that um, that seemed like they don't value critical thinking skills for the formerly incarcerated, if you want to use that term, justice impacted or, or whatever. You know, we're going to give you a job as a, as a uh, doing warehouse work or you get a certificate in what? Uh, what, whatever. I got a number of jobs. Right, so. but but on the flip side, he was saying if you start thinking critically, you look at it, they're creating machines that are going to put Uber, the people that drive Uber out of business or Lyft or whatever. They're going to create a car that come pick you up, drive you where you want to go or whatever. Or create they're going to create it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> they got robots riding yeah. around here. Yeah, yeah. Lunch. So, so... You know, so so what he was saying is that we, we need to impart more critical thinking skills on 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 people as so they can think outside the box for themselves and kind of determine their own destiny as opposed to saying, "Hey, look, we got this. We got these different tracks for you. Mm -hmm. Fit fit into one of them." Instead of coming out and maybe saying, "Hey, man, look, I want to create my own track. I want to do conflict resolution. I I feel I got enough skills. I've been you know on." Living in a close situation, where critical, where critical thinking and, and and diplomatic skills are applied every day, and, and conflict resolution skills tap into me. You did, so that's what I'm looking at. That that we need to really look at this as an opportunity to learn from from people that have been impacted. You know, homelessness. I have a guy come in, 
um, that talks about homeless being homeless in Oregon, being homeless in Washington, being homeless in uh, California, um, and some of the things, the, the abuses that he saw within the homeless system and how people were getting in inordinate amounts of money and having very few successes, you know. Millions of dollars and you've only housed five or six people. Where's, where's this going? So why don't you have somebody who's actually been homeless figure out what to do or create a model? And so here you have, again, people with PhDs, uh, masters or whatever, <coughs> kind of determine the model of what a person should do. It's like, it's like a man trying to d develop, well, what should be the process for a woman? That, no, you, you, that just doesn't seem to compute, right? You know, um, or, or anyway. But I, I wanted to talk about the term lifer because I wanted it to be an opportunity since this goes out to educate people how, how why you don't consider that term applicable to you, but it's a term that's been applied to you. Uh, I think um, for me, the term lifer is, is, is almost equivalent to the term slave, right? And it's to kind of remind you of your place. Um, the term lifer is more so of a, a political term. So lifers are people, uh, when, when he's saying lifers, he's talking about people that were convicted of a crime, which carry usually a base term, one year all the way to a thousand, to life, versus someone who is sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. So in my situation, I was sentenced to 30 year, 32 years to life. So anywhere from 32 years, which has a base term that you do in that 32 years to life, meaning I could do the rest of my life in prison. Not that I will do the rest of my life in prison. So just to go into that, I'll share with you that most of the people when I first got to prison that had life and it was a yard full in level four, it wasn't many people that I ever saw go home from level four, right? And people that came in with short time, you never knew who they were because they wouldn't say anything. They just slide out. And most of the people that were there never thought they would come home. Never thought they would come home. Part of that was as a result of the narrative of what they had been told. Right. That if you get life in prison, you would never get come home. A Republican governor said it, a Democratic governor said it, that the lifers aren't coming home. So that began to be a term that was adopted institutionally. Lifers. So they refer to you as lifer because when you have a term to life. So it began to be a political game. And so being a political game, it took political and legal ramifications to begin to open the doors because the board of prison terms were operating independently of the law hmm. because we were lifers and the governor said we weren't coming home anyway. So it took however many years to begin to straighten that out because of prison overcrowding. And so for me, lifer is a prisoner, is a, <clears throat> is a political term and it's a stigma that's meant to keep you in a place it's kind of like the elephant once you uh, tie his leg up. And even after you, you, you've ha had him tied for so long, but once you let him go, he still thinks he's tied. Right. And that's part of the mind state of, of, of uh, uh, the Department of Corrections and the institutional mind state that is, is, to me, meant to be instilled. Because we understand the power of language, right? Right. right. And so when you use that term, you're using a political term. And so for me, I was a person that was sentenced to a term to life, right? And I'm now part of the 
society. Although I am on parole, see, they won't let me forget that either, right? Mm -hmm. And so, being that, to me, all of this is an extension of slavery, mm -hmm. being uh, that um, uh, uh, in, in the, the 13th Amendment we're talking about, right? Slavery is still illegal. It was, was abolished, except if you've been duly convicted of a crime. So, legally, I'm a slave, right? And so it kind of goes with that stigma and that mind state of how they treat you, mm -hmm. how they talk to you, the world that they carve out for mm -hmm. you, right? And the, and the arena in which you can operate in, right? So for me to be on Cal campus, that's an expansion because they don't have services that's directed me to urban scholars, underground scholars. They may have a job that directs me to one of the restrooms, the private restrooms that they use on the, on the streets in San Francisco. And they, they've done a good job at hiring people. But that's, mm -hmm. that's a step. Yeah. We're still dealing with human beings. We're not dealing with people that just need jobs. We're dealing with people that have families they haven't seen right, in years, right. right? We're dealing with people that have uh, uh, social problems, communicating with people, right? You're talking about people that only been communicating with men for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years, whatever, right? So our social skills need to be further developed, right? Our leadership skills need to be further developed. Our political skills need to be further developed. And so we don't have uh, uh, institutions that's designed to deal with us on that level. Mm -hmm. So when you say lifer, it's puts us in this pile instead of the amongst the rest yeah. of the people. And Mr. Best may have. Well, it, it brands, and it, it puts us in a straitjacket and brands us. Mm. Makes it difficult for us to break out of it, especially if we accept the terminology. I don't, I don't accept that terminology for me. I had a term to life sentence. Let me give you an example of, of how important it is to understand term to life. I was sentenced to 22 years plus four months to life. That meant that I could do up to 22 years counting the credits. Mm -hmm. They didn't give us any credits, which was against the law. Right. So when I come up for parole, I had already done 23 flat years, no credits considered. If you count the credits, I would have, I've done maybe 35 years. Mm. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I've already done beyond the parole that they assigned me to, if you count my credits. But since they violated the law, they didn't count my credits. Lifers don't get Lifers don't get credit. They dealing with me as if I have life without the possibility of parole. People in the community talk to me as if I had life without the possibility of parole. Am I making sense? Mm -hmm. I take umbrage to that. I'm offended by that. Now, I realize that people don't know People don't know what I know. They don't understand it as I understand it. And they're just following the narrative, what they hear, the press, how they talk about it. That come from Pete Wilson starting. Pete Wilson and Duke Magian. Pete Wilson had a brother-in-law 
who was in the construction industry and he was getting paid, he was getting a contract to build the damn prisons. So he had a personal interest in it. So he said, on my watch, lifers are not going home. It's meaning those that have term to life. He didn't mean those that had life without the possibility of parole. We knew they weren't going home, but he threw us in that bag. Mm. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah. So it's an insult to me to call me that. I know, I know you don't mean to insult me. You're speaking out of the narrative. You know, it's like it's almost like light. I want to try to pick a, a, it's almost like a child growing up being told that black is evil, black is distrustful, black is sinful, black is diabolical. Angelic is white, and so forth and so on. So then the child is asked, pick up the, a black doll is laid down, a brown doll, a tan doll, and a white doll. Pick up the pretty doll. Invariably, the child will pick up the white doll. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's, that's what we're dealing with. People, we have... We have people that are scientists of evil and scientists of trickery and deception, psychological scientists that want to keep a particular structure in place. So they use what they can to get people to buy into that. Now, if, if we, those that were harmed by this practice, this, these policies, this terminology, if we accept to use it, then we become enemies against our own growth and development. It's, it's very insulting, but it, you know, it takes, we need, we need to put down an educational uh, program to educate the public on what has happened. If, if that makes sense. Because then, when it comes back to us, that's why I like the, your 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 reworking of that definition of oppression. Because what that really does is, it makes the agent being the formerly incarcerated becomes their own oppressor when they adopt that language. Yes, you know what I mean. They're applying their own. They're applying those restrictions on themselves. Yes, unwittingly, unwittingly. Yes, that's the uh, the insidiousness though of language. And, yeah. and I'm going to use a. Uh, an example that that we all kind of adopt but never really consider the other side of it so you know when we, when we think about um, black people Latino people uh, it's easy to say people of color right like that's a that's a kind of common phrase and it kind of groups into into um, people of color and we all we all kind of accept that as a thing but what is what's the opposite of that like we we don't accept the other side of the story which is if you're not a person of color you're a colorless person yeah, but we never call anyone else, you know, in a kind of an pejorative way. Well, 
you're a colorless person. You know, because that's not the way that story's supposed to go. Right. You know? So the, the idea of, like, I can call you what I want, but not have a consequence on the other side. And that's what we're getting to. I can call you a lifer and not have a consequence on the other side because we don't think about the that for this definition, there's a counter definition. Mm -hmm. And so when we, we uh, one of the things that we get to do in the philosophy side is talk about where stories come from, narratives, and then create and then think of the same construct that made that narrative, what's the counter narrative to that? But again, like a people of color, yeah, that's, we're people of color. But white people don't go, I'm a colorless person. That's just not the way it works. And so, but if we adopted the first one, why don't we adopt the second one? <clears throat> so, so, so in, in line with that, what mm -hmm. you just, in, in line with what you just said, I, I teach a class on theology. And, one, and part of it is I hold up a sheet of paper, white sheet of paper, and I ask, has anyone ever seen a person that color? <laughs> and I ask, what color is that? People naturally, they see it as white. There are no human beings that's that color. All of the human beings that we call white are privileged human beings in American society or globally among the human family. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about privilege. We're not talking, we use, we use the word color, but we're really talking about privilege. Mm. Well, <laughs> the funny part about that is that in, in physics, let me just, in physics, so white is actually the culmination of colors, right? Yeah. But it's it's not it's but, not the it's the opposite. But um, but I, I want to say yeah. that uh, as I understand it, black is the source of colors. Black is the source out of which the colors come, and in humans. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And and according to genetics, which can be proven uh, to uh, uh, mathematical preciseness, it is the melanin that's in the skin cells that gives us what what hue yeah. we reflect. So. From my perspective, that would mean that we're all black, different shades of it. And that eliminates that's this crazy kind of narrative. Yeah. What are you saying, huh? Yeah, that's a crazy well, kind of narrative. Okay. Okay. No, he just, he's being okay, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, you're going to hear a knock on the door. I hear you. But, but, <laughs> coming, huh? but when, you look, when you look at, when you look at the uh, melanin and the sales, mm -hmm. the people that are called white have less concentration of melanin yeah. than the rest of us. Yeah. But they are not white. Okay. They are not white. So I, I just want to, so what would it be the term that would, would identify you as opposed to, uh, 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 or describe your ontology or existence or time incarcerated, how would you would you describe that? I mean, uh, how would I describe that? I mean, the term "lifer" you find it, it inappropriate, for lack of a better term. 
What uh, terms would you I use? Was, I was I was I was in prison for a long term. Okay. Seems some pretty simple. Long term imprisonment. Okay. I was in prison for a long term. Uh, that doesn't make me see the lifers are still there. Right. <laughs> that, that was some that was that were that had life without the possibility of parole. When I went in, mm -hmm. they still they still got that, and and they still there. Okay, because I, I I think what, what I was just trying to take this as an opportunity to to inform and educate people about. I don't want to say the negative context, well the negative context of language and how it's being used, but more importantly, what would be the positive way of describing yourself if we're going back to Du Bois' notion of double consciousness instead of having others to describe who we are yeah. we describe who we are ourselves and so yeah. if you were describing who you are yourself how would you characterize long-termer long-term imprisonment long-termer or yeah that that in that time of imprisonment was was a long term of imprisonment and the, the governors with Duke Magian Pete Wilson Gray Davis they are the ones that called us lifers. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the public didn't protest. The public was unconcerned about what they called us and the policies that they made with respect to us. The public became concerned when the, U when the U.S. Supreme Court started talking about um, uh, medical examinations being done in toilets uh, and the medical care that was accorded to prisoners in the state of California was substandard. Mm. Then the public became a little concerned. The public became more concerned when they began to see that money spent on the back end of life for imprisonment as compared to money that could have been spent for the education of children, which would have prevented a lot of people from going to prison. Mm. So it, it forced that kind of thinking uh, because three strikes is indefensible. Bill Clinton said he violated the law when he said, if you don't apply three strikes to the states, if you don't apply it, we're not going to give you your funds for highway development. That's against the law. Wow. So rather than the states challenging him on that, who was who was who were they talking about sending to prison? They were talking about the poor. They were talking about Hispanics. They were talking about blacks. And who care about them in reality? Ineffective voting blocks. Yeah. Who care about them? The thing that was uh, in some instances not even their family members. Real talk. I mean, if we, if, you know, can we be honest here? Keep it 100, so. man. Yeah. You know, Please. real talk. That's the reality. The, the, the thing that was how narrow-minded how narrow -minded or how short-sighted that, that strategy was is those things that you just talked about, when you, the cost of locking someone up for life, because you imagine all the, for anybody who's, who's had to uh, take care of an elderly parent, you know what I mean, or, knows, or is familiar with those kind of costs, you're going to have a population of people with those same kind of ills and concerns that are now the burden is on the state to, they're obliged to pick up those costs. Mm -hmm. Because uh, guess what? It's a, it's, a, it's a condition of our justice system that we put them there. 
So therefore, we are responsible for their upkeep. Right. And that's the part about that's the part about prisons, the prison system as it's currently constituted, that the society itself does not seem to take into consideration when it makes its calculus. They see tough on crime. Yeah. They see safe streets. They don't see what the cost of that is. We want to lock people up for life. We don't want to pay for it. Yeah. Right, got, right, right, right. You know and what you, I mean? And you got stuff that, that spinoffs from that that take place like this. Uh, you go in for a dental examination every six months, and a doctor will tell you all your teeth need to be pulled. You don't have any? Well, like in my case, I only had one cavity in my life. In my life. So I told her, you know, I was told that. I, I, was, I was told that all my teeth need to be pulled. I said, that's so offensive to me that I, I can't even talk to you. I mean, I was livid. But I'm, I had to control, control myself because I, I'd have to go to the hole if I say what I want to say. Because she's going she's gonna to say that I threaten her. And, you know, she's going she's gonna to add to it. But I told her, I said, that's, that's, that's so offensive to me that, I, you know, I'll have to leave. I don't want to talk to you anymore. So the, 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 the hygienist is there. So that's my witness, what I said. You know, but I have to maintain my cool after having said it. Because I meant every word I said. And I thought even more. But you got some people that go in, they get all their teeth pulled. For no reason. The dentist told them. The dentist told them to do it. The dentist said they need it done. It's been six months. You don't have to come back for another dental exam. <laughs> okay, I'm slow, man. I just, one of the things I, I think what is they do. going into narrative, right? When you're talking about crime or criminal, um, for us in the, in the mainstream society, that's like garbage. And when you sit your garbage out, you don't ask the man where he's taking it, what mm. he's gonna do with it, right? Mm. You just set it up. You want him to come get it. And another thing about garbage is um, some people recycle garbage. And in that garbage, some people throw away some things that are very valuable. And that's how I look at this dilemma that we have with prison. So when you ask um, how I see us, I see us as a new type of leadership coming mm. forth, um, a new voting block. We'll be able to vote in five years, right? So the people that, uh, uh, the Nancy Pelosi type of Democratic people, see we've had opportunity to kind of study these people now, right? Mm. So just thinking the same old politics is kind of different. And so I see a new leadership able to kind of come out of the, I call them hidden universities, right? I think they pay maybe 70000 a year for us to be in prison. Yes. And if you're on medication or whatever, that's a little more. So I don't they were know not intended to be universities, yeah. though. I don't know what you guys pay for a four-year college, but I did six of them. I did 23 years, so I did, <laughs> four, uh, you know, six, four-year stints just about, um, at about 70000 a year, right? And so um, there are going to be some bright thinkers coming out of there, right? Um, and you're going to have some people that are, are not yet ready. Um, and I say that to say that it's a, it's a, um, 
it's an individual yet collective effort to develop ourselves in the institutions, mm -hmm. right? And so um, I think a new leadership will emerge that, um, that will help take us a little further in, in, in California and America. It'll be like the Malcolm X syndrome. Yeah. Real talk. You know, I, I, I look back, they say, oh, this is a great idea. We're going to educate prisoners and have them come to UC Berkeley and blah, 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 blah. But then if you look back, it's not really a new idea. Remember, if you read Malcolm X, the, the men's prison colony. And I think what they saw was that when Malcolm came out, they wanted to make sure that we didn't read books anymore. We didn't have access to libraries. Malcolm talked about all the old books he was able to read, you know, the Parkhurst Library or whoever it was, some rich cat that... Just like Mr. Best talked about, he had seven thousand books. I can, I, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of ecstatic about something <laughs> like that, man. You know, I have seven thousand books, but but Malcolm to be exposed to that, and then what they did is deny people education because they didn't want any more Malcolms. They didn't want a new leadership coming out. They didn't want somebody else solving the problems from the oppressed perspective. But more importantly, somebody to can articulate and defend themselves and think critically because that's what Malcolm was able to do. He was able to think critically. Ronald, and Ronald Reagan had a policy, stated policy publicly, that he did not want to see another George Jackson develop in the prison system. It's real talk. And so we get but not, so we'll never get this information. We'll never get this information from reading a book about uh, uh, some, some some social researchers uh, research about what's going on in prison. Yeah. This is why we have to have this first person ontological and epistemic perspective. Without it, we'll be lost. We'll we'll be duped into believing something that's not necessarily true. You've been totally quiet. No, I've been taking it in. I don't. I I don't really know what to say. I don't. I don't know if I have much to. You know, to, but um, I don't know if we're close. But I just wanted to thank you guys so much for coming. Um, I think this program is really important. Just not to like this school itself, but to like every individual university slash person. I think we agree at that part. Thank you. I okay. Good. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I know it kind of takes a lot to like kind of open up and be personal. So I, I, speaking for myself, and I'm sure Louie as well, it, we really, it means a lot to us. So, appreciate it, guys. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the forum. Thanks for the We appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, of course. The beautiful you campus much. you have here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be seeing you guys this afternoon. Except yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah, Are you going to be teaching this? Um, I'm actually going to another social justice thing from academic standpoint.